Well, it is really lovely. It's a privilege to be with you. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, preaching on Colossians chapter 4. This is the last but one of your series in Colossians. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read chapter 4 uh, from verse 2 through to the end. And you're going to look at it again next week. Uh, but I've been instructed uh, to talk about praying doors open. So that's what I'm going to focus on prayer this morning. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justus, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, I have to tell you that I am haunted um, by a door that would not open. Uh, this happened a few years ago uh, when we were on holiday with our eldest daughter uh, and son-in-law and our two granddaughters in Tembe. And we'd had this gloriously hot fortnight. And on this particular day, uh, our daughter and her husband had gone out for the evening and we were babysitting our little granddaughters who at the time were four and a half and one and a half. And uh, we decided that what we were going to do, because it was a lovely evening, was we're going to put the tea in the oven and we we're going to take the girls out down to the beach, which, uh, if you know Tembe, is a great place to go. Uh, and when we got back to the house, uh, having been out for, I don't know, about 45 minutes, an hour perhaps, the latch had dropped uh, on the door. Uh, and, the, so, and both the doors which gave us access to the house were double locked. Uh, and there was no way of getting in. And because we're of a certain age, we had left our mobile phones in the house. Uh, and uh, the tea was cooking. And uh, I started to panic. In fact, panic's probably understating. I was basically having a meltdown. Uh, and I had visions of burning down the house. And because it was a terraced house of the whole of Tembe, essentially. Uh, and uh, these things were haunting me. 
Uh, and so I, you know, I ran into Tenby and I was trying to find Dave and Bex, but we had no luck in finding them. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were just trying to stay calm. Well, I wasn't. I, I wasn't. <laughs> if I was trying, it wasn't very hard. Uh, Margaret was trying to keep me calm uh, and try and keep the girls calm. Uh, and, uh, but I was really, really panicking. And, I, and so I decided that drastic action was needed. And I got hold of a brick and I started to hammer on the, on the glass, but it was shatterproof. And so I'm hammering away and Margaret's trying to calm me down and you know what you get like when you're really worked up, you start to snap, you know, and you start to, so I was snapping at her uh, and I was just really panicked. Now, we did eventually get in, but that's another story, but the damage was done. And I'm haunted by this because our eldest granddaughter has this etched on her memory. And whenever it suits her, she brings it up in conversation. You know, all our family are gathered and suddenly Evelyn will go, remember that day in Tenby, Grandad, when you tried to break the door down. You see, I'm never going to be called Grandad in the eyes of my eldest granddaughter. You see, the thing is this, that we want doors to open. That's what we think they're for. We want them to open easily, but not all of them do. And it's true in life, and it's definitely true of the spiritual life, that we are called to open doors, but they don't always open as easily as we would like them to do so. And so as you've been looking through this wonderful letter of Colossians, you've, been, you've seen the new life, the beautiful new life that is ours in Jesus Christ described and Paul now gives the young Colossian church an idea about some of their responsibilities. He's told them this, this is what you're going to come into. This is the new life that you can put on in Jesus Christ. These are the people that you can become. But actually, there's also some responsibilities. There's some things that you have signed up for and that you're going to be involved with. And they are Paul's partners. They have become Paul's partners. And they should therefore share in his God-given mission. And this they're to do in two ways, we're told, in verses 2 to, uh, to 6. Firstly, they're to partner with Paul through their prayer, in verses 2 to 4. And then they're to partner with Paul in their witness, in verses 5 to 6. So Paul urges them to pray for him, and specifically to pray that God will open a door for the message of the gospel and pray that he will be able to proclaim that message with clarity. And Paul's assumption is that there are spiritual dynamics at work and that there are spiritual forces that are both good and bad that are at work as God's mission is pursued. He assumes that there is opposition. There is the opposition of Satan himself. There is the opposition of the world. There is the opposition of our own flesh, of our own sinful nature. And hence, there's the need for us to pray open doors. Uh, I, uh, one of my favorite books, and I highly recommend it, is called Mountain Rain. And it's a, a story, it's just a short biography of a, a, a missionary to uh, uh, what would be South uh, West China, um, of a guy called James Fraser. Uh, and he worked among the Lisu people. So this is a kind of on the border of China and Burma and Thailand. Uh, and this happened in the early 19th, uh, sorry, the early 20th century. And uh, James Fraser was a missionary to these people and he worked a lot on his own. 
uh, and he encountered this opposition among, Lisu peop- uh, among the Lisu people. He saw people who kind of were open to the gospel uh, and then he would visit them again a few weeks later and they would have gone back because of spiritual opposition. Uh, and he was kind of like a, you know, a fairly modern guy uh, and he needed to be persuaded of the reality of the spiritual battle that was faced. And he came to see how there was a battle, a real battle raging for the souls of these people uh, and how, uh, how he needed to pray and push open the doors of the gospel and push open the, the door of, into maturity into the lives of these people. Paul assumes that, and that's perhaps something that we lose sight of all too easily as living in the 21st century in our sophisticated, uh, supposedly enlightened uh, view of the world. Paul assumes that there is opposition, but he also assumes that he needed the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and he needed the work of the Holy Spirit in order that the doors to people's hearts and minds would be opened. Tom Wright, in his little commentary on Colossians, says this, the door most likely refers to the door that allows the word of God into our hearts, minds, and lives, the lives of individuals and communities. It's a word opening the door for the gospel to go into people's hearts and lives. Paul is urging them to pray for people to be converted and churches planted. Now, as Michael said, I'm... uh, pastor at Oxford Road Baptist Church and I started just about two years ago it'll be two years at the end of this year that I'll have been there so I came I moved in the middle of the pandemic I preached the first Sunday of 2021 and then closed the church on Tuesday it's a world record you can see it for yourself in the Guinness Book of Records but uh, but we're experiencing interesting and encouraging times I've not known it I've been a pastor for into my 34th year now and um, I've never experienced so many new people coming to church. We just seem to see every week, every other week, new people arriving in church, coming, moving to Hartlepool, some of them, many of them. And, and, and it's so encouraging and it's so interesting and I'm trying to discern what God's doing at this time. But as of yet, we haven't seen any conversions. We need as churches and as individuals to be praying doors open the doors to people's lives, that they will come to know Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who changes lives and communities. And, and, you know, I was just reminded as as I've been here and seen Michael leading this, you know, Michael came to Christ through the witness of church. And here we are 20-odd years later, and here he is leading you. That's the work of God, changing, transforming lives. And we need to pray for that. And I just wonder how many of us are actually praying regularly for people to become Christians, people that we know, people that we rub up against, people in our families. I've just um, read uh, the story of George Muller, uh, reread the story of George Muller, who was a great, uh, great uh, Christian of the uh, 19th century. And uh, he, he basically ran... Uh, children's homes for up to about 3,000 children in Bristol. Uh, And he did it all through prayer. Never asked for any donations. He just prayed the money in. And it's an incredible story. During the course of George Muller's long life, he prayed for five people to become Christians. 
And in his narrative, he, he, he narrates that uh, uh, up to that point, three of them had become Christians. And then a bit later on, while he was still alive, the fourth person became a Christian. And then it actually says in this little book that uh, the fifth person became a Christian after he died. And he lived to be 90-something. He'd been praying for them for 60 years. How many people are we praying for, for the doors to be opened so that lives will be changed? Jesus changes lives. But there is resistance. The door is double locked. We're banging away on it. So what should our prayer look like? According to verse 2, it should have three characteristics. It should be devoted, it should be watchful, and it should be thankful. Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer. That's a strong word, isn't it? If someone tells you to be devoted to something, you know that that's a big commitment that you're being asked to make. It suggests that our prayer needs to be regular, it needs to be steady, it needs to be thorough. That prayer requires determination, persistence, and discipline. And we use phrases like a quiet time or a devotional time. And that language suggests something, I think, which is, a, is passive. And often the focus might be on receiving a helpful thought for the day and perhaps praying for some personal and family needs. And that's great. Uh, there is nothing wrong with that, but it's actually a starting place. God wants us to grow into people and churches whose prayer opens doors and smashes through the resistance of Satan and his host. I play, um, I play five aside every week. And every week, I'm determined that I'm going to improve my game. I have never yet played, and I've played lots of five-a-side in the course of my life. I've never yet played the game and thought, that's it. I've achieved the level that I want to achieve. Now, Michael's seen me play, so he'll know that this level is not very high. But even if I devoted long hours to it now, how much better at the age of 58 do you think I'm going to get? You know, that's the thought. You know, I want to be better. I really do. But get this. If we devote ourselves to prayer, we can grow in it for the whole of our lives. There isn't going to be a point where you cannot be someone who prays. We can continue to open doors for the gospel. What a privilege that is. My dad is, I love my dad to bits. My dad is 90. He has dementia. Uh, and, uh, but he prays. He prays. When he talks about God, it's like he doesn't have dementia. It's incredible. There isn't a point, there is not a point where we cannot keep on going and growing and being devoted to prayer. In the Hebridean revival, the last revival that took place in the United Kingdom in the 1950s, in a village called Barvas, two elderly women, Peggy and Christine Smith, aged 84 and 82, who spoke only Gaelic, One was blind, the other was bent double, unable to attend services in their local church, but their cottage became a sanctuary where they met God. And they received a promise from God, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And for months they prayed and claimed that promise until revival came to Barvas and to the Hebrides. And many people say these two ladies who never got to church were the cause of the, or were one of the preeminent reasons why God worked and moved in that place. Our prayers are to be devoted and watchful. And that recalls Gethsemane, 
where Jesus told his disciples to keep watch. And the idea is about staying awake. In the context of the letter, it's about being awake to the threat of false teachers, but also to an enemy keen to trip them up. And so here's my other, another question. How alert are we to Satan and his threats? How watchful are we when we pray? How watchful are we in guarding our hearts, guarding the time that we put aside to pray, guarding the opportunity to grow and develop our prayer lives? But also I wonder if to be watchful is to be like the men of Issachar who understood the times, who knew the times. In our praying, are we alert to what God is doing in the world? Are we alert to the challenges of the times in which we live? God, God is at work, isn't he? Stuff is happening. I mean, we're living through crazy times. You know, when Michael invited me, well, it was about six prime ministers ago. We're living through these times that we've not, most of us have never experienced in our lives. We've come out the other end of a pandemic. We see war right on the, in Europe that threatens peace. We're seeing these issues with the cost of living. And, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s. But many of us have not known such times. These are important times. And for what it's worth, I think we're living in a Kairos moment. I think it's a time of opportunity. I think it's a time when God is at work and I don't know what the outcome of it's going to be. I don't know how bold we will be, how faith-filled we will be as the church in the United Kingdom to take hold of this moment and this opportunity. But um, Mark Batterson, a pastor in Washington, D.C., wrote, there are moments when playing it safe is risky. I think that's a prophetic word for, it, for us and our time. There are moments when playing it safe is risky. I think this is such a moment. We need to pray. We need to be faith-filled. We need to act on what God tells us to do. And also, Paul says our prayer should be filled with thanksgiving, keeping our eyes open to every way in which our faithful God provides for us and blesses us. But it doesn't end with prayer. Verses 5 to 6 tell us that we need to partner in mission through our witness. Note Paul assumes that most of his readers are living out their faith in the sphere to which God has called them, living ordinary lives, but living witnesses in their context. They're not all apostles. They're not all expected to church plant. They're not all expected to preach the gospel in the way that Paul preached it, but they are, and we are all expected to live our lives as witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this witness is marked by wisdom. Derek Tidball, in his book on Colossians, writes, Wisdom will mean that we shall be sensible in our actions, alert to our opportunities, and gracious in our speech. Before I went to Bible college, I, I was a nurse. Uh, well, I trained as a nurse at York District Hospital. And... Uh, and I can remember, you know, on the first day that my set gathered, I made it very obvious that I was a Christian. I said, you know, we would say one thing about yourself, I'm a Christian. I just thought, let's get it out there. Uh, and uh, that can be a help, a big help, because you're accountable to all your non-Christian friends who keep telling you how unchristian you are. Um, and I can remember there was an occasion where we were sat round, uh, most of this set was about 20-something people. We were sat round in the cafeteria uh, and someone said to me, do you believe that we're all going to hell? Now, how would you answer that question? Well, here's how not to answer it, because this is what I said, yes. 
I think that answer was lacking wisdom and grace and all sorts of things. And it's a miracle, but next year it'll be 40 years since, we, uh, since my set uh, went to York. And I've been invited to the reunion, can you believe it? Now, this passage, you see, it challenges us to be intentional, intentional in preparing ourselves to be witnesses. We've got to pray, we've got to pray, but we've also got to prepare ourselves to be intentional about taking opportunities as and when they come. Tom Wright again writes, Christians are to work at making their witness interesting, lively, and colourful, and at the same time to ensure that they have thoroughly mastered the rudiments of their faith so that you may, may know how to answer everyone. We open doors through our prayers, through our lives, and through our witness. And then finally, a word on Epaphras, verses 12 to 13. He was from Colossae and had been involved in establishing the church from there. And as the letter is written, he is with Paul, and Paul has lots of good things to say about him. But I just want to highlight two things about him that speak to the issue of prayer. First of all, that Paul says he is working hard on their behalf. What is he doing? He's not in Colossae. What's he doing to work hard on? Is he fundraising? What? Paul says he's wrestling in prayer for them. So I want to just ask you this question. Do we think of prayer as part of the work of ministry? Do we think of prayer as work? This challenges me and it challenges any of us who are involved in church leadership. How much do we consider prayer to be part of the work that God has called us to? And surveys of the lives of prayer, uh, the prayer lives of church leaders are frightening you know the paucity of 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 the prayer lives of many church leaders it is scary and what about our churches experience suggests that getting people to pray together is about the toughest job going we we profess to believe in prayer but our actions suggest that we don't really see its value and its importance in the book Mountain Rain, um, Eileen Crossman writing about her father, actually, James Fraser. There was a period in his ministry after they'd had quite an awakening. The Holy Spirit had moved and a lot of people of this Lisu tribe had come to faith in Christ. They were dotted all over this mountain range in little villages. And there was a period, I think of about six months to nine months, where Fraser wasn't able to go out and visit any of these churches. All he could do was pray. And when this period came to an end and he, was, and he set out again to go and visit these tiny little churches, he discovered, much to his amazement and his joy, that they had grown both in numbers and in maturity during that period, when all he'd been able to do for them day after day after day was to pray. Because prayer is work. It's the work of ministry. But also... Paul tells us that Epaphras was wrestling in prayer. Now, I grew up in a time when wrestling was what followed Saint and Greavesy on ITV. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. It's the word that is used to describe Epaphras' praying, wrestling. It's the word which we, from which we get agonizing. It's literally, that's what it is in the Greek, agonizing. That's what it means to wrestle. It suggests giving oneself to the utmost effort with all the self-discipline required to achieve the goal. We need to recognize that prayer does not come easily to us. It is a battle. 
And for all the blessings of living in the West, perhaps something that works against us is that by and large, things come too easily to us. You know, we live in an age of instant things. We're on our phones. You can get the answer to virtually any question, anytime you want. But I want to say this, spiritual blessings do not come that easily. We have to wrestle because we have the tag team of the world, the flesh and the devil lined up against us. We wrestle with ourselves, staying focused, our minds wandering. And we want it to be so much easier. In fact, we almost expect that it should be easier. And because it's difficult, we think we must be doing it wrong. And then kind of like we give up or we think that God... But actually, possibly, the fact that it's difficult means we're doing it right. And we just have to wrestle on through it. As Eileen Crossman observes in that book, Mountain Rain, one of the most crucial lessons that James Fraser had to learn is that it would be costly to maintain a close walk with God, a deep and continual cost every day of his life. Just let me say that again. It would be costly to maintain a close walk with God, a deep and continual cost every day of his life. Every day we have to wrestle wrestle to hold on to and to maintain that relationship with the Lord Jesus. Not because he's wrestling us away, but because of this opposition that we have that's within us and without us. The uh, American pastor, well, he's an Aussie pastor in New York, John Tyson, in a sermon I heard him preach recently, says this, the only battle that is worth fighting is the battle for intimacy. The battle that we really need to win, the wrestling that we really need to, to, to engage with is, the, is to wrestle our place at, at ourselves into a place of intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's where we need to be. Prayer is relationship at, the, at its very heart, relationship with God, and we have to battle, we have to wrestle, we have to commit to holding on to that relationship. So what does it mean to wrestle in prayer? What does it look like to open doors through our prayer? It means overcoming our lethargy. It means perseverance. It means long obedience in the same direction. It means living between what is and what is not yet. It's to claim the promises of God and to know that our Lord and King, Jesus Christ, has won the victory. And this is the letter of Colossians. And if I remember rightly, in Colossians chapter 2, there's a verse which talks about how he leads them in triumphal procession because he's won the victory. So prayer may be a wrestle and it may be a struggle, but we are already on the victor's side. We're taking hold of what is already accomplished because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. Amen. just want to just to pray for you lord um thank you for this church lord thank you for all that you're doing through this church and lord thank you for each person here lord all of us i'm sure know that prayer is important but i guess that many of us struggle with it and I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, as you minister to, to your people now, Lord, that you will just continue to convince us of the importance of prayer. 
that you'll convince us, Lord, that uh, this is something that we can invest ourselves into, that we can devote ourselves to, something that we can grow in, and that, Lord, this time next year, Lord, we may have gone on in, in this area of our lives and, and seen you do great things through, through the prayers that we offer. So I pray that in each heart this morning, you'll just birth something of a commitment to renewing our prayer life, again, putting it at the top of our agenda for our lives. And I pray, Lord, for this church, Lord, that it will truly be a, a, a place of prayer, a house of prayer, in which, uh, Lord, many people gather together to pray and to open doors. And I pray that you'll open doors, Lord, around this place and in this town of Darlington. Lord, that uh, many, many people will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us in this moment, this opportunity to hear what you want to say to us and to obedient, with obedience and faith push on in to what you want to give. So Lord, we just thank you so much that you are here and that you're here to bless. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.